0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Good morning. We are continuing our study of 1 John this morning. And I've been saying the whole time in this study that this epistle is written to Christians. It's written to those who have trusted Christ. And John's purpose in this epistle is to instruct his readers on how to have fellowship with Yeshua and the Father. Now, that's my take on this. Most people see this epistle as a series of tests to show who's saved and who isn't saved. John MacArthur, for example, says, The immediate aim, then, of this epistle is to lay down the tests by which someone's spiritual condition can be determined. So, to John MacArthur, this is a test, and we can go around and test each other and make sure that each other is a Christian or not. Um, no, I don't think that's what this is about. Those who hold this view, though, would focus in on the verses we're going to look at this morning to kind of attempt to prove their point. Now, this section, chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, is a difficult passage of Scripture. I'm sure you're aware of that if you've read it. And just let me say that the translation that Gary read this morning, ESV, is a terrible translation of this text. Okay? Well, it's not your fault. I put it up there because that's what we use. But we'll compare text and we'll see, you know. But uh, what we're going to do this morning is something a little bit different, all right? I'm just going to kind of give you an overview of verses 3 through 10 and try to explain to you what I think they are saying. Then we're going to come back in the following weeks and and work through verse by verse and really pull out what's in here. But I want to get an overall picture of what's happening. All right, let's start by looking at verse 9 because verse 9 is, you know, 6 and 9 are where the controversy is. I want to look at it in the Christian Standard Bible, which I think translates this verse correctly. Most modern verses do not. He says this, Everyone who has been born of God Does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he's been born of God. How does that make you feel? (laughs) Now, don't go questioning your salvation yet, okay? Let me get through this before you make any decisions on your future, all right? When you read that pragmatically, You have to question what's being said here. I mean, do you sin? Do this. Do this. Yes. Okay. Then according to this verse, you're not a Christian. That kind of this kind of wipes out everybody, okay? There's nobody left if this is if this is what it's saying. All right? Look what Paul said about how we as Christians should live our lives. These are some of my favorite verses because they're so convicting. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, Paul calls believers here to have a mind, and attitude, or thinking of humility, which was Christ's attitude. And this whole chapter is about humility. So not to act in this way would be to act proudful, which would be sin. And do we, in humility, always count others as more significant than ourselves? Now, we do count some people more significant than ourselves. You know, we have this pecking order, and we, these people we look up to, and then there's us, and then there's people below us, and they don't even count, right? But he said we're to count others more significant than ourselves. So to not act this way is sinful. So pragmatically, 1 John 3.9 is a big problem because we all sin. Well, 1 John 3.9 is only not only a problem pragmatically, it's a problem doctrinally it doesn't fit with the primary rule of hermeneutics, which is the analogy of faith, okay? Or Scripture interprets Scripture. And this means that no part of Scripture can be interpreted in such a way to render it in conflict with what is clearly taught elsewhere in the Scriptures. Now, do the Scriptures clearly teach elsewhere that believers sin? Absolutely, alright? Over and over, the Scriptures are continually calling believers to stop sinning. And the interesting thing here is what John writes here seems to contradict with what he writes in 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Okay, so we can't say as believers that we have no sin but if we do sin, we're not a child of God. Now, you see the conflict? <laughs> 3.9 says, believers don't sin, can't sin. One eight says, if we say we don't, we're not sinning, we're self-deceived. Alright, look at 1 John 2.1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. So, he's writing to Christians. Little children is... Identifying them as Christians, born of God. That's what he's saying, those born of God. I don't want you to sin. But, if you do, we have an advocate with the Father. Okay? So which is it? Do Christians sin, or are they unable to sin? When reading 3.9 in the Christian Standard Bible, or you can read it in the King James Bible we're faced with what seems like a blatant contradiction. And it's my opinion that the Christian Standard Bible and the KJV accurately translate nine. Look at how Young's Literal puts it. Everyone who hath been begotten of God sin he doth not. Because his seed in him doth remain, and he is not able to sin because of God he has been begotten. Alright, so... Now I got you confused and you see the problem, right? Let me ask you this. Does Scripture contradict Scripture? No. So there's got to be some way to reconcile these verses. But how we do that is not agreed upon at all. Okay? There's a lot of different options out there. For example, John R. Stott in the Epistles of John in the Tyndale New Testament Commentary gives seven traditional interpretations of this passage seven different ones many more solutions than seven have been offered to try to relieve this tension but most either soften the force of the plain language of the passage or they also interject theological constructs that are foreign to the context of this epistle And we're not going to look at all the different views but I want to go over several of them just to see what's out there and hopefully see what makes more sense okay Number one is called the habitual sin view. This is the most popular by far among evangelicals, interpreters. And most translations, as you saw the ESV this morning, adopt, adopt this habitual sin view. <clears throat> what this view says is in 1 John 1, 1.8 and 10, John is saying that Christians are not free of sin, but that in three, four through nine, he is saying that no true Christian will have a lifestyle of sin. See, they argue that three, six, and nine is saying that those born of God cannot sin habitually. Bless you. Okay. Now, if I say you cannot sin habitually, what does that mean? No more than once a day, twice a day, all all the time, constantly. Okay. So that's, that would get most people off the hook, right? I only did it twice today. It's not habitual. You know, how do you define habitual? See, it's nebulous. You can say, oh, no, no, I'm not habitually sinning. I only do it once a day. Or several times a day. Whatever. See, 1, 8, and 9 recognizes that they do not sin, that they do sin Occasionally. But they're just saying you don't sin habitually. And this distinction is based on the use of the present tense forms of the verbs in 3, 6 through 9 when speaking about sinning, which it is argued denote habitual sinning. Many of the modern translations reflect this view. Here's the one that was read this morning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, he cannot keep on sinning. This is the popular, the popular view. Now, look at these, the different translations here. The ESV has added the words practice and keep on. They're not in the text. all right. But see, you read a translation like that and you think, yeah, that makes sense because just the other translations don't. The Christian Standard Bible takes it absolutely. He doesn't sin. He's not able to sin. But see, that's hard to deal with, so they had to come up with ways, well, we've got to figure out some way to do this. The modern literal version, 2019, put it like this. Everyone who has been born from God does not practice sin. Because the seed abides in him, he's not able to practice it because he's been born of God. Let me just say about this modern literal version, 2019, it is anything but literal. Okay, it's not. They add, they just, it's so biased that it it makes me laugh that they call it a literal translation. And the problem with these translations is, they use the present tense, and they're trying to take that present tense and make it say things that it doesn't say. Because the present tense says nothing about habitual or non-habitual character of sinning. It just shows that the author has chosen to depict the sinning as something in progress rather than as a completed action. The present tense is also used in 1.8, where the author says this, if we say that we do not sin habitually, see, that's how you'd have to translate it if you want to use the present tense that way. Present tense here, present tense in 3.9, same thing, but they don't translate it that way here. If we say that we do not sin habitually, we deceive ourselves. So this is, again, a conflict, because it's saying we don't. if we say we don't sin habitually... And then 3.9 says you can't sin habitually. So either way, if you're going to use that, you got a conflict. In both uses, sinning is said to be impossible for those born of God, and also where those who deny they have sinned are said to be self-deceived. The present tense of the relevant verb is used depicting the sinning as something in progress going on. Zane Hodges, who taught New Testament Greek for 27 years, says this. <clears throat> There is no doubt that in an appropriate context, the Greek present tense can have a present progressive force like he is sinning. But the introduction of ideas like continue to sin or go on doing require more than the Greek tense to make them intelligible. For this purpose, there were were Greek words available which are actually used in the New Testament. So he says if they wanted to say habitual or keep on, they could have done that, all right? For example, Luke 24, 53. And we're continually in the temple praising God. Here, continually as diapantos, the Greek word. The same word is used in Hebrews 13, 15. Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, acknowledging His name. The Greek present tense did not by itself convey the idea of continual or habitual or practice. If John wanted to say no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, he would have used the Greek words available to do that. He didn't. No first century Greek reader or here was likely to get a meaning like practice sin out of that text. John Murray, commenting on 1 John 3, 9, writes this. The interpretation that the regenerate person does not habitually sin labors under two liabilities. Number one, the term habitual is not sufficiently well-defined term. It's not like we just talked about that. What is habitual? How many times do I have to do it to be habitual? You just can't nail that down. Okay. He goes on to say this characterization leaves too much of a loophole for the incisiveness of John's teaching. It allows that the believer might commit certain sins, though not habitually. This would contradict the decisiveness of a statement that the one begotten of God does not sin and cannot sin. Smalley also unmasks this misuse of the present tense. He points out that 5.16 uses the present tense to describe specific sinful acts, not chronic transgression. So the present tense can't bear the weight of this translation, keep on sinning or habitually sin. Grammatically, it just doesn't work. Okay? (coughs) So the habitual sin view, I don't think holds any water okay i think like i said to me it's 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 ne- taking the absolute away but it's pretty nebulous cuz i can always say well, that's not habitual habitual would be if i did it 10 times a day you know i mean you make up your own standard whatever it is all right secondly the sinless perfection view now those who hold this view take 1 john 3:9 at face value and they say they no longer sin so they're trying to be true to the text. <laughs> but I don't know how honest they're being. The Quietist movement that was originally popular among the Quakers and then became part of the Armenian perfectionist movement believed that you could come to a post-conversion experience in which you momentarily became so totally surrendered that you never sinned again. Sinless perfection. One of the popular Quietist writers was Trumbull. He wrote this. In this condition, a Christian does not even experience temptation for it is defeated by Christ before it has time to draw him into a fight. So think about this, people. Sinless perfection. No temptation. Let me just say, sinless perfection is a myth. Okay? Would you agree with me on that? Do you know anybody who's sinlessly perfect? Kath, it's your opportunity. Laughter Now, if we hold this view, and we sin, and we will sin, whose fault is it? Well, it can't be our fault, because we're surrendered. Who do we blame it on? Now, within the sphere of preterism, there are some who are saying that all sin ended in AD 70, and therefore we don't sin today. And this, to me, is a self-serving view that allows them to engage in all kinds of sinful behavior and say, it's okay, because there's no sin. Let me just tell you something, people. Beyond 80-70, men still sin. Hang on to this. Christians still sin. You still sin. Yes. (laughs) You. (laughs) Okay? 3.9 says, He is not able to sin because he's been born of God. If 3.9 is talking about sinless perfection, it wouldn't be something we had to work at. Why is he not able to sin? because he's been born of God that's why he can't sin so you not have to work to this point this would happen instantaneously when you became a Christian if John was talking about sinless perfection then 3.9 would prove too much because in that every regenerate person would be sinlessly perfect and only sinlessly perfect people would be regenerate that's what he's saying you don't sin so that view doesn't work too well either And I don't, you know, there are some people who actually hold that view, but, you know, because they say, oh, it's talking about us. I'm sinlessly perfect, and I don't sin anymore. No, that, like, doesn't work out too good. All right, there's the not real view. This view says John does not describe reality, but an ideal situation. Okay? Swaddling argues that the problem is more apparent than real. His suggestion is that the troublesome texts of 3.6 and 3.9 are, in fact, quotations of heretical secessionist slogans claiming that Christians do not sin. So he's saying, John's not even saying this. He's just using their slogans against them. All right? If this approach was real, (laughs) the author would, if he's using these slogans against them, it kind of defeats John's whole argument here, making a distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil. It just wouldn't work out, all right? They cannot be written off as heretical, secessionist slogans when he's using them to compare people. He says these are the children of God, these are the children of the devil. So this view is just, it's not real, okay? It's not real at all. Alford takes this view. C.H. Uh, Dodd took this view. William Barclay mentioned it as a possibility. But see, I don't see John intending to deceive a Christian by writing of ideals, Because in 3.7 he says, let no one deceive you. And that would be kind of deceptive to hold that view. Alright? So let's look at another view. The absolute view. Now Kubo argues that the the affirmations of 3.6 and 9 must be interpreted absolutely. So sinning in this context is an absolute impossibility for those born of God. And to deny this is to weaken the point being made by the author. I agree, that, it does weaken it when you try to do other things to it. But here's how he resolves the tension. He recognizes, well, if I say it's absolute, then what about these other verses? What about 8 and 9? To resolve the tension between the texts, he argues that the author is rejecting 1, 8, and 9. What he's rejecting in 1, eight, and 9 is the claim to have no sin made by those who walk in darkness. See, it's not inappropriate for those who walk in the light to make such a claim. So he's saying, oh, just if you walk in darkness, you can't say there's no sin in you. Those who walk in the light. But see, the contradiction still stands because he doesn't deal with chapter 2, which says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I don't want you to, Christians, to sin, but if you do, we have an advocate. So it doesn't take those verses into consideration. And again, it's another view that just doesn't work. The Projected Eschatological Reality View. While several interpreters take this essential view, the exact phrase was coined by Daniel B. Wallace. Speaking of the present tenses in 1 John 3, 6, and 9, he writes this. The immediate context seems to be speaking of a projected eschatological reality. The larger section of this letter addresses the bright side of the eschaton. Since Christians are in the last days, their hope of Christ's eminent return should produce godly living. The author first articulates how such an eschatological hope should produce holiness. Thus the author states in an absolute manner truths that are not yet true. Because he's speaking within the context of eschatological hope and eschatological judgment. Now Coates also argues that the contradictory statements about sinning are to be understood against the background of the author's eschatological view. The believer is born of God, but he says he's not yet what he will be when Christ comes. Snackenberg also says the tension between the two passages is best explained in terms of the eschatological tension in which believers live. Now however, Coates and Schnackenberg Approach undermines the author's purpose. You can't distinguish the children of God from the children of the devil by saying the children of God one says do not sin, but another they do. And this view holds that First John three sixty nine is speaking in terms of a projected eschatological reality. In other words, he's just saying when the Lord comes back, we won't sin. We can't sin when the Lord comes back. Well, as a preterist, you got any problems with that view? I mean he he tries to put it into the already but not yet. They're already not sinning but again, John is using this to compare the children of God to the children of the devil and we can't really make a comparison when we say, well, they must be a child of God but someday they're not going to sin when the Lord comes back No! It doesn't fit, okay? Since we know the Lord's already returned, we know that's not a good view. So let's move on Alright, let's try the new nature, old nature view. Now, I'm sad to say this is uh, advocated by my buddy Zane Hodges. In in his comments on verse 9, he states this, As a total person, we do sin and can never claim to be free of it, but our inward self that is regenerated does not sin. Now, let me ask you something. Is our inward self part of the total person? <laughs> I mean, how would you say, yes, my inward self is not part of me? Uh, as a total person, we sin. And we can never claim to be free. I'd call him up and talk to him about this, but he passed on years ago, so can't really talk to him about it right now. <clears throat> he goes on to argue that sin exists in the Christian, but it's foreign to his true internal self. Sin is an impossibility for the regenerate self, which is the believer's true identity. All I can say here is that at least he takes it absolutely. Whoever is born of God doesn't sin. He takes that at face value, grammatically. But his theological construct is hard to justify in this context. All right. So there's part of me that doesn't sin, the, the newborn again. Brooke, another scholar who wants to solve the problem by taking into account the nature of man, says... The fact that he has been begotten of God excludes the possibility of his committing sin as an expression of his true character. Though actually sins may and do occur in so far as he fails from weakness to realize his true character. Again, another view that I can't buy. They're saying we sin, but not really us. And to tell you the truth, this bothers me because it sounds very Gnostic. Because the Gnostics were saying it doesn't matter what we do physically because it's not us. It's the spiritual that matters. So they're saying, well, yeah, your, your total self sins, but your real self doesn't. Uh, that to me is... Okay, let's move on. The contradiction view. You're going to love this view. Yeah. <laughs> Raymond Brown, who I've quoted several times, he is a renowned Catholic Johannian scholar. He believes that a contradiction does exist and it cannot be explained away. He says this, No other New Testament author contradicts himself so sharply within such a short span of writing. Bogart, likewise, says this is an unresolvable contradiction in 1 John in the matter of perfectionism. So they're saying, no, it's just a plain contradiction. How do these guys do that? Oh, the Word of God is contradicting itself. Well, then which one do we pick? Which one do we take? Whichever one we like? This is just, this is really ridiculous. But these are scholars. I mean, like I said, Brown, I quote him a lot because he's he's a well-known Johannian scholar. All right, none of these views are satisfactory to me. All right? So we have to ask, can we interpret John's statement about sin and perfection without accusing him of contradicting himself like some do, and without nullifying the argument. I think we can. Let's call it the specific sin view. Okay? Now, if we go back to the fourth gospel and look at how Yeshua uses the word sin, it may help us to understand what John means in our text. Same author, so let's go back to John chapter 9, 1 and 2. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Well, Yeshua responds, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now let me ask you this. Is Yeshua saying here that the son or the parents had never sinned? He said, it was not this man nor his parents who sinned. Is he saying they never sinned? No, he's saying that the blindness was not due to something specific that they did. He's not saying they didn't sin. All right, at the end of this chapter, Yeshua said to certain of the Pharisees, He says, says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. The word translated guilt here is the Greek hamartia, and it should be translated sin. Again, let me ask you, was Yeshua saying that if the Pharisees were physically blind, they would be sinless? No. Again, He's talking about a specific sin, that was characteristic of them in their rejection of Christ. We see this in the upper room discourse. Yeshua told His disciples, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. So let me ask you, is Yeshua saying that they, in the context of the world, would be sin-free if He hadn't spoken to them? So if Christ had never come and spoken to these people in the world would they have been sin free is anybody sin free no he's speaking of a specific sin and here it is rejecting christ so in each of these cases the terms are absolute some specific sin is in view and i think the same principle applies to the language of first john where john is speaking of a specific sin now again To get everyone to agree on that, we've got a different different ideas here on what sin it is. Hall Harris suggests that in 3, 6 through 9, John is not talking about sin generally, but rather focusing on one sin specifically, and he says that sin is a failure to love one's brother. He notes that loving the brethren is a theme that runs throughout the epistle. And failure to do so is the only specific sin his opponents are ever charged with. I agree with that, okay? Loving the brethren is undoubtedly a major theme in 1 John, and the following context, verses 11 through 15 of chapter 3, moves into the explicit warning against not loving one another. So what do you think about this view? That this sin is not loving. Let's see if we can put it into verse 9 see how it looks. Everyone who has been born of God loves others. Because his seed remains in him, he is not able to be unloving because he has been born of God. Does that make this verse any easier to take? (laughs) No. It doesn't make it any easier to take at all. Okay, we've nailed down one sin specifically, but boy, how does that help? I mean, have you ever had a time in your life where you've been unloving to another person? No. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Colin G. Krauss in the Pillar New Testament Commentary has this to say. And I think this is helpful. He asked the question in trying to understand this text, is anomia the key? He says, One way forward is to recognize that the passage, 3629, is part of the treatment of the connection between knowing God and doing righteousness found in 229-310. through 3, 10. In this passage, the author provides a basis for distinguishing the children of God from the children of the devil. In doing so, he makes a connection between sin and the devil three times. This connection is made both by explicit references to the devil, 3, 8, and 10, and implicitly by equating sin, hamartia, and lawlessness, anomia. Anomia is found only in 3, 4 in 1 John. Alright, so this is the only time that John uses this word, is in verse 4. And here's what John says, everyone who commits sin practices anomia. And sin is anomia. That's the word for lawlessness here. Now, when you look at that word lawless and you think what? Breaking the law, right? It's not what he's saying here at all. And you have to really again, you got a translation that's saying this, it would better say uh, everyone who commits sin practices Rebellion, or something like that. It's it's something more directed against God. Um, In the Septuagint, translation of the Old Testament, we find anomia used to translate no less than 24 different words, Hebrew words. The most frequent one is the Hebrew word avon, for which English words like wickedness or iniquity are good equivalents. In some places in the Septuagint, anomia, has satanic associations. And in two places, it's used to translate Belial. These things help us see how they get the teaching later in the Jewish text that the sin of the people of Israel was brought about by the power of wickedness, by Satan and the spirits. And he quotes here a lot of pseudepigraphic texts, a lot of Qumran texts. Uh, People who commit sins are called children of iniquity in the Qumran text. So among the Gospels, only Matthew uses anomia, and he does so consistently in association with false prophets or others who oppose God's kingdom, and always in association with the last days or the final judgment. In the Pauline corpus, the single form anomia, in all cases but one, is used to denote a sinful power at work in the world and one to which Christians must not submit themselves. Paul uses this word to describe the man of iniquity and 2 Thessalonians 2.3 No one who deceives let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of Anomia is revealed the son of destruction. So it's a strong term. Now in the New Testament Anomia meaning transgressions of the law is completely absent. You never get that meaning from the New Testament that he's breaking some law. They are, of course, but that's, this word is stronger. All this suggests that when John says sin is anomia, he does not mean sin in, is a violation of the Mosaic law. Uh, the word law, nomos, doesn't even appear in 1 John. Rather, he is saying that human sin is anomia when it involves an opposition to or rebellion against God. Now, a number of exegetes consider anomia to mean more than lawlessness. Anomia may have the meaning of rejection and opposition of God's will and His rule. Now, the sin which distinguishes the children of the devil is the sin which has its roots in anomia, i.e. rebellion against God. It's the sin that believers cannot commit because God's seed remains in them. Now, the children of God do sometimes commit sin. We saw that in 2.1. But the one thing they cannot do is commit anomia, the sin of rebellion, the sin of the devil. We could say that the sin that John is talking about here and what I think it boils down to very clearly is the sin of rejecting Christ. You cannot do that, believer. That's what he is telling the believers here. And it fits into his theme because he's also writing to give them assurance, right? 1 John 5.13, These things I have written to you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have. A life. I'm writing these things so you'll know you have eternal life, and you know because these false teachers are committing these sin, they're pro- propagating this stuff, and he's, they're worried. You know, can we do this? And he says, no, you you don't have to worry. Now look, what he, let's go back to the gospel. He says, eight twenty four. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am. He is not in that text. Unless you believe that I am. He's using the tetragrammaton there. Okay, I am Yahweh. Unless you believe that I am you will die in your sins. All right, Without faith in Christ, you're going to die in your sins. Look what he says in 1 John 4, 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Yeshua the Christ has come in the flesh is from God. See, the Gnostics, pre-Gnostics, they were saying he wasn't really a man. It was just a spirit that came upon a man and then left. You know, God can't be a man. Flesh is evil. It can't be him. So he's saying unless you say that he's come in the flesh, is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Yeshua is not from God. If you, if these people are saying, no, he wasn't really a man. They're not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, he says, what you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Now, notice how John closes this epistle. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that you should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. So he's saying here, listen, there is a sin unto death. Don't even bother praying for that. I think we can identify the sin unto death with something that fits the grammatical and historical context of the epistle. Many writers have supported the idea that the sin of death is the sin of unbelief or rejection of Christ, which is a major theme of Johannian writings. So, if we connect three, six, and nine, and five, eighteen, we see that the impeccability of the Christian, the way that the Christian cannot sin, is he cannot reject Christ. The sin of death is the sin of unbelievers, not of believers. This explains the statement that the one who is born of God does not sin and cannot sin. They can't do this. This is the sin they cannot do. Now, in 1 John 3, John is writing with two distinct and radically different groups of people in mind. And this is clear from the first verse. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, all right? Saying we're children means we've been born of God, all right? So that's who we are. We're children of God. And so we are. Then he says this, the reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. So he's making a, two groups here. we got the children of God, and then you got the second group being the world. Now in verse 10, it is clarified that the term world, as used here, means children of the devil. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now this way of radically dividing humanity is typical of John. We see a similar thrust in two passages from the fourth Gospel. Remember, same writer. So he's going back to the fourth Gospel. Look at what we see here in John 15, 18, and 19. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Contrast. Children of God, children of the world. John 17. This is the Lord's Prayer. I've manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So we have children of God, we have children of the world. Now, he says in 3.4, everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness. lawlessness. Now, the term everyone here in this verse does not include the children of God. It's not universal in the sense of including both classes of people under consideration. And it's clear that everyone who commits sin does not apply to the children of God because verse 6 categorically states no one who abides in him sins. And verse 9 says no one born of him commits sin. Now the parallel construction in 3, 3 says, And everyone who has this hope purifies himself. So we see the comparison there between 3 and 4. We refer to mutually exclusive classes of people. Everyone who has this hope purifies, those are the children of God. Everyone who commits sin, they're of the devil. So we could say that anomia, as a definition for sin in this context, applies only to the children of the devil. It's a kind of sin in the sense that it represents disobedience or rebellion fostered by a particular orientation to sin. The people that John was warning his readers about held beliefs that involved a denial that Yeshua was the Christ, the Son of God come in the flesh. 1 John 4, 2 and 3. And that his death was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. They didn't believe that his death was necessary because they didn't believe it was really him because, again, the flesh is evil so God couldn't take on flesh. They were totally denying the incarnation. So John uses Anomia only once in this epistle and that's when he defines the sin of the world. The children of the devil. What is the sin of the children of God? John does say that God's children sin, right? He says in verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins. If we confess, He forgives. Now here the context clearly has reference to the sins of the children of God, and the key word here is unrighteousness. Now in 5.17, again, the context clearly has reference to the sins of the children of God, and we find this, all unrighteousness is sin, there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. The word unrighteousness here is atakia. All right, so when John talks about the sins of the children of God, he uses adokia. When he talks about the sins of the children of the devil, he uses anomia. The first applies to the children of the devil. The second applies to the children of God. The first issues from alienation and estrangement of God. The second from our weakness, our fallibility. So John sees two categories of sin. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death. So we got those sins at Achaia that don't lead to death. He shall ask and God will give him life. So pray for your brother when you see him sinning. Those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say you should pray for that. So the children of God... Have an advocate, and that is why their sin does not lead to death. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua the Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Uh-oh. World? Everybody gets in on this? Listen, here's what you got to understand again. The term world has at least ten different meanings. All right, we've seen that as we've gone through John. Christ did not propitiate the wrath of God against everybody, but He laid down His life for His sheep. They are scattered throughout the world in every tongue and tribe and people and nation. It doesn't say that He purchased all people in every group, but some from every group. And word world here means Jew and Gentile alike. From the whole world. In other words, all different classes of people He died for, just like He uses it in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Did he love those Christ-rejecting God-haters? No, he loved all kinds of people. People from every class and type. The children of the devil are without an advocate, therefore their sin leads to death. We could read it this way, 1 John three nine. Everyone who has been born of God does not reject Christ. Because the seed remains in him, he's not able to reject Christ because he's been born of God. Believers, we sin. And quite often, on a regular basis. Often, habitually. But our sin is not unto death. And this verse is telling us that we cannot commit the sin that the unbelievers do, and that is rejecting Christ. The sin that leads to death. So, this view is the only one, in my opinion, that makes sense of the text, that takes the text seriously. The sin that 1 John is talking about in 1 John 3, 4-10, is the sin of rejecting Christ. The sin that we cannot commit is to reject our Lord. And that's, you know, I poured through many, many more views that I didn't bring to you, but like I said, none of them really seem to hold up. They don't, they're not honest with the text. Grammatically, they're not honest. So this is the view I've come to. This is, you know, I'm not, of course, the only one who holds this view. There are many out there who see this Uh, connected with the you know the sin unto death the sin of rejecting christ so that's where i'm at right now and what we'll do now is we'll come back and start with verse four and just kind of work through this text and maybe it'll even make more sense by the time we do that let's pray father we thank you for your word for the opportunity to be here this morning lord this is a critical text this is an important text i pray that you would uh, give us the heart of bereans lord and we'd study to see if these things are so thank you lord for your grace to us amen